gaming is extraordinarily powerful because you can walk in someone else's shoes, you can build all these great connections. But then the knowledge that most of the games being played today don't actually fully represent the points of view of everyone on Earth, I see an opportunity to really change that trajectory. I'm joined today by the incredible Sarah Bond, Corporate Vice President at Xbox. Sarah has a talent for problem solving and innovation, and she was part of the T-Mobile team at a turbulent time in the company's history, and her strategic direction was integral to their turnaround. 39 million customers in just four years, making the company the fastest growing US wireless carrier. Now, Sarah joined Microsoft in 2017, spearheading Xbox's Game Pass subscription service. Bold experimentation, and it's fair to say the occasional failure, and a user-focused approach to business have helped make Game Pass widely successful. And I'm particularly interested in the way in which Sarah's explored the psychology behind gaming and the community it builds. Now, as a gamer myself, I'm excited to reminisce about some of my all-time favorites from Candy Crush to Pokemon and to discuss Sarah's big plans for the future of gaming. So welcome to the show, Sarah. How and where are you today? Well, thank you for that lovely introduction and welcome. I am actually here working from home today in Seattle, Washington, where I live. I'm quite happy because I have natural light today and I spent the first two years working from home in my basement. So this is my upgrade up here. (laughs) I'm loving that. And I am coming to you from the 67th floor of Hudson Yards in New York. So absolutely delighted to get going and into the conversation. We're so excited to welcome you on the podcast, but before we do, I'd love to ask you a series of quick fire questions to get us warmed up. Does that sound all right? It does, but I might be slow. Let's see. (laughs) What does the word innovation mean to you? Progress. Best advice you've ever received? Forgive yourself. Where are you happiest? Looking at the water. A game that you get lost in? Elden Ring. A phrase you live by? You own your power. Oh, I love that. What makes you feel like you belong? A blanket. (laughs) Finish this sentence. The future is... Here. So let's start with your approach to gaming. You've said that human connection is the heart and soul of gaming. How has this philosophy inspired your approach to Game Pass, the subscription service that you helped to pioneer? Yeah, the, one of the things that I realized after spending a lot of time in this industry and with game creators is that gaming is the only media form where you can actually connect with someone. You may have never met them. You don't know what they look like. They don't necessarily speak the same language as you. And you can achieve something right? And actually do something together with them. And so that's when I talk about it being a part of human connection. In the modern world where we are separated by so many things, gaming has this ability to bring people together in a shared space that, you know, other forms of media simply don't. And there's something really powerful in that. And so when we started thinking about building Game Pass, as a subscription, you get a certain number of games that you can play at any given time. We realized that that enhances that experience in a number of ways. First, like the catalog itself, what's in there, how we curate it is super important because what what we what was happening was as people would buy like a game 
or a title and they knew the knew the name of it. Probably games that your kids play, right? You know, and they would always go and buy those things. But there would be these other beautiful stories that they might be less likely to buy because it wasn't a publisher they knew. But by putting in a subscription, people would start experimenting and trying all of these new things and experiencing all these new perspectives. So that was really powerful. But then the other thing is, is it's sort of like, you know, you sit down on a Friday night and if I have Game Pass and you have Game Pass, we can sort of sit together and say, where do we want to go today? I talk about it like imagine if you had reservations at 10 hotel rooms around the world and you could just all pick which one you wanted to go to together. That's sort of what Game Pass gives people, at least in the virtual world. I love that. And as a mum of four kids and three boys who absolutely love gaming, I see how they come together mm-hmm. and they have that connection with their friends. Yeah. So I'm really interested on the impact that you think multiplayer gaming, which has really evolved enormously mm-hmm. in recent years, has really had on human connection. It goes back to what I was saying before, which is that this idea that you can do something with someone and meet people too, who you otherwise would have never have met, has really changed what the nature of friendship is. And I don't actually play a lot of multiplayer. I'm more a single player platformer person personally. But then when the pandemic started, I started letting my kids play multiplayer games online. They were like five and eight when it started. So they were pretty young. And so I hadn't been letting them do it. But then when they couldn't see their friends, It's like, well, okay, you can play with your friends. And it started out like my daughter was playing with other kids that she knew the neighborhood and then kids from school joined. And then like the cousins of some friends from school joined. And then a friend who had moved to the East Coast of the United States. And then my son started playing. And it was like this massive group of kids, like 15 kids playing Minecraft after school every day. And there was this great day. I was on a call like this and my son like bursts into my office and he's like, mommy, mommy, we slayed the ender dragon. Like we brought it down. And I thought that this was just so cool. One, just that they had built this connection and this was a play date I would have never organized. Like no mother in her right mind can have 15 kids over, right? And have and fly them in from across the country. But it was also one that had more variance in age and a whole bunch of other things that otherwise wouldn't naturally happen, I think, in how we approach things in society. And it just opened my eyes to the power of multiplayer in terms of creating breakthrough experiences and just extending friendships over long distances and things that normally separate us. Yeah, and I think especially over the last couple of years, with so many people being in lockdown at various times, having that connection with people their own age outside of the household, I think was was really important. I'm also really fascinated by the radical moves that you and the team have made at Xbox. Just picking up on the launch of Game Pass, which did allow that access to a huge catalog of games, was actually, you know, it's easy to look back now, but it was a risky thing to do. But you did say at the time that you felt that the industry needed to do it. Was there a resistance to making the shift from a transaction-based model to a subscription model? Massive. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more. Tell me more. It's actually pretty funny because I I turned up very early on. I think it might have been in the first couple of months since the launch of the subscription. And it's one of the reasons, frankly, why they wanted me to join the team. Because as you were sharing in my bio, I had come from wireless. I knew subscription businesses. I'd done a lot of work in it. And so they wanted me on the team in part because they wanted me to bring that to what we were doing in Game Pass. But, you know, for years, for gosh, 20 years of an industry, gaming was a transaction business, full transaction business. And it started by like literally a retail cartridge right in the store. Um, 
about 25% of a game's total revenue happened in the first two months. So people just bought that item and then that was it. And then in the shift to digital, what we saw is that that changed the, the spending arc. And it went from 75% in two months to 75% in two years because people actually were monetizing games over time. And it also led to an explosion of gaming content. We went from, you know, a couple hundred games typically being available on a console to thousands of games. And so consumers started asking us for a subscription. They said, I want to invest in my game content over time. I want to curate a catalog. And so we designed it in response to consumer feedback, but creators and game developers were completely terrified of the changing of their monetization model, right? They were thinking of all the risks associated with it. And so that was a real process actually working with, and that's my role, that's what I do, working with all the game developers globally to help them see the opportunity that the subscription opened up. And so it just started, we said, okay, we get it, right? It's unknown, it's untested. Give us one of your back catalog games, we'll put it in the service. And so if you look at the early lineup, it was a lot more older games and things like that where people weren't as worried about cannibalization. And then they started to see the engagement And then we showed them the data from that. And the thing that was amazing about it was what was also happening is they got engagement in the titles that went into the subscription, but the subscribers themselves became more engaged in gaming all up. And it was because of that effect that I was telling you earlier, which is they were more willing to experiment and try new things. And it became more of a habit where you could just sit down on Friday night and play Game Pass, right? Then it versus like a, like a moment, it was a habit. And so then that flywheel started to spin and we showed all of our partners the data and they said, okay, well, maybe I will give you a more recent game, a bigger game, right? And we kind of worked up from there. And then we started doing experiments with our own first party catalog. And so that process, it's been, gosh, it's been almost five years now, I think, since we started of just testing, learning, building with partners and really proving out what a great model it is in addition to the transaction business model, when you think about monetization paths for games. And what you're talking about really in many ways, easy in hindsight, but Mm -hmm. it's very much the tech mindset of test and learn, isn't it? it And maybe people don't want to give you straight away, you know, the crown jewels of the newest product, but they're happy to test on the backlog of things that perhaps they weren't monetizing in quite the same way. But what sort of responsibility do you feel now today about pushing the boundaries with gaming? Well, I just feel it's an enormously important part of the work that we do. And if you really look at it, you know, 70% of people under the age of 25 would rather play a video game than any other form of media. And so that comes with a great responsibility. Like this is what our, you know, the future generation is engaged in, where they're spending their time, where they're making connections, where they're getting impressions about the world that shape then how they interact with others. But when you really break down what's happening in game development and where games are made, the vast majority of games are made in Western Europe or in East Asia. And so what that means is, is that those stories, beautiful and amazing stories, represent more often than not the perspectives and the points of view of those cultures. So when I sort of merge those two ideas together, the idea that gaming is extraordinarily powerful because you can walk in someone else's shoes, you can build all these great connections, but then the knowledge that most of the games being played today don't actually fully represent the points of view of everyone on earth, I see an opportunity to really change that trajectory. And so 
really opening up game creation, making it possible that anyone's story can be seen and heard and told in a game is also really important for shaping the next generation and how we all engage with and connect with each other. I think people probably haven't thought about that aspect of who's telling the stories Mm -hmm. and what the stories are, are representing, which brings me to a different area, which is you've talked about placing bets and, you know, taking risks. What about failure? Failure is inevitable, right? If you're if you're innovating, do you get nervous when you're investing in projects that might not work out? And how do you mitigate risk? Yeah, you know, I like to say there are no mistakes. There are things that happen that we can learn from, which manages my nervousness a bit. I think that's why I say that to myself. Because like, if you don't have some degree of failure going out of the system, then you surely aren't trying enough that's new. And then when you try that thing that's new, you can choose to say, oh, that's a failure. But more often than not with the teams, what actually happens is, is we take whatever we learned from that and we place it and we put it into something else. The classic example we talk about a lot is the Connect. actually. Um, you know, we built the Connect for Xbox. The technology, the, the recognition technology sits in Azure today. So you'd say, is it a failure that there's no more Connect? I'd say absolutely not. I'd say it was a beautiful consumer application to perfect that technology that we've now embedded into our cloud fabric. And so reframing for the teams what it means to stretch and try something and not necessarily know if it works out or not is a lot of how I find that it's about managing risk, but really about managing opportunity and just reframing it as how you're managing opportunity and opening up opportunity helps me in terms of how I think about it, but really helps the teams in terms of having them come to me with those opportunities, which is what I really want. Yeah, I think welcoming people taking bets, grounded in learnings, but then if things don't work, recognizing taking the learnings and then seeing where else you can apply going forwards, I think is such, such important advice. It is I'm thinking back to the earlier part of our conversation around, you know, talking about the COVID pandemic and, you know, the changes that you were allowing your children to do. And certainly it, w- it was the same for me yeah. with that. I was playing Fortnite, FIFA, Rocket League <laughs> with my kids. Nice. <laughs> but I'm really, I like it. Yeah, check, check me out. I'm not saying I was as good as them. But I'm interested to know, we talked about some of the changes that we saw in people's gaming habits, but have those persisted since then? You know, some of it has and some of it hasn't. I mean, we we have more options with our time now, and that's certainly true. But what we see is, is the demand for gaming in terms of people wanting to engage, buying a console, having it be part of their lives has stayed because they learned something through it, right? It's kind of opened up possibilities and opportunities for folks. But the balance at the time, I, I think, is far more integrated now, which is healthy and important. The past few years have transformed all of us. People around the world are reassessing their purpose and their priorities. Meta Foresight set out to understand these fundamental shifts, to look beyond what's trending and to understand the deeper issues. Because beneath the trends, there's culture rising. A groundbreaking report that explores what's changing in our world, like conversations about gender and identity, or the ways that people renegotiate their relationships with work and each other. See the trends shaping the future at facebook.com slash business slash foresight. Okay, for the next part of our conversation, we're going to go back to look at some of the experiences, the influence of basically what shaped 
the person that you are today. You've been hugely successful in the business world. But did you have any role models in business that you looked up to when you were growing up? Certainly the number one role model for me, honestly, is my dad. You know, my father was born in the 1940s. Uh, he was a executive in telecommunications. He actually worked at British Telecom. I think I'm picking up a British accent. So. You are indeed. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think about the world he was born into and the set of challenges he had to overcome and face at that time as an African-American man. It is deeply inspiring and sort of beyond business, actually. Then I think about you know, my parents' parents and the set of things that they also had to deal with and overcome and endure. And so in a lot of ways, so, you know, sometimes something will be happening at work, right? Like you'll have a, a tough meeting or a bad day or a presentation that's stressful or a thing you have to do that's really not that great. And I think, you know what, this is awesome compared to what others had to do who came before me, who gave me this opportunity. And I am inspired by that. The other thing my parents did, both my mom and my dad, they were really good at teaching me how to walk through the world as both optimistic and realistic. And the reality of the fact that people might see or perceive me differently because I'm a woman, because I'm Black, because of, you know, whatever could be going on, but not have that be debilitating. My dad used to say, because if people are staring at you, just assume they're doing it because you're interesting and you're smart and you're beautiful. Just don't let it get to you, which I always thought was the sweetest, most loving advice a dad could give his daughter. I think everybody now just loves your dad just that <laughs> little bit. I mean, wow. <laughs> and I love realistic optimist. That's a beautiful phrase as well. I'm totally going to be grabbing that one. I want to go back even younger because your love of gaming started at a young age. And actually, you, you and I actually had pretty similar start to gaming. I believe you were six or seven playing PC games yeah. with your dad. Yeah. But for me, it was Mousetrap and Pac-Man and Space Invaders on my Atari console. Remember those? Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> old school. I love it. <laughs> I know. Check me out. Growing up in the 70s. Tell me um, your memories of gaming from that age. Do you think any of that, those experiences, influenced your career choices? Yeah, you know, um, so my first game that I can really, like, I thought about it really deeply. I was like, what's the first game I can remember playing? And I actually was thinking about this because I was writing a speech and I decided to start the speech by talking about that. And and I went to go uh, talk to my boss, Phil Spencer, who runs gaming at Microsoft about the speech. And we're sitting in his office and he goes, OK, like, it's got to not be Mario. Like, it's not just Mario, right? Because that's what everyone says. And I said, OK. And, and I closed <laughs> my eyes. I was like, OK, so I was playing this game. It was a world that if you walked far enough, you came back to right where you started again in only a couple of minutes. And it, there was green grass and there was a prince and a key. And he's like, King's Quest 2, Sierra Online. And I called my dad and I was like, was that King's Quest 2? And he said, yes. I thought that was amazing that he got it right. And that's the one I remember so fondly sitting, playing that with my dad. You had to read the text of the little character and move him around. And I just remember just sitting with him and doing it and him encouraging me to do the reading because I was only six or seven and I, I wasn't a very strong reader at that age. And so did it influence Yes, but not consciously. And so when the opportunity came to actually do it for work, it felt very natural to me and fun and sort of enjoyable to go from just a consumer of games to someone who also gets to shape the future of it. 
But you also made sure in amongst all of that gaming that you're head down focused on the academics. You've got an amazing, impressive academic resume, BA from Yale, MBA from Harvard. And there's, you know, today there's a lot of conversation about elitism in education, the impact on social mobility. And actually, it's something that we talk about a lot at Meta. I'm just curious on your view on this and how important you think the education that you had was important to the career success or it is for people these days. You know, I think learning how to reason through a problem or articulate a point of view is what's important. How you get to learning that, I don't think has to do with the caliber of the school as much as how you meet and sort of apply a set of experiences. It's very rare I go back in my head to something I learned in class. It's more about, okay, how did I learn actually to learn how to reason, learn how to write, and then hone those things in lots of different environments and push through new experiences over time. And so today, like when I look at the composition of my team, I don't know where people went to school. I know they went to did a whole bunch of things. Some people haven't even necessarily graduated from college on my team. And the performance and the opportunities that they're able to open up for themselves is based off of sort of how they turn up every day and all of those things. Far more, you know, entirely really based off of that and not where they were educated. So what is it that you're looking for then when you're hiring? So many things. An ability to listen more than speak, empathy, grit, humility, a strong willingness to work with and empower others. I love that. We've talked a lot about the bold changes that you've helped to introduce at Xbox, but I'd also love to hear more about your time at T-Mobile and the Uncarrier campaign and the extraordinary success that had and really did change the fortunes of the brand. So, you know, we're in the past right now. Tell me a little bit about that. Ah, well, that was an amazing ride. So I worked at T-Mobile from 2011 to 2017. I actually joined, I was four months pregnant, and I joined as the CEO's chief of staff. And about one week into having joined, he comes into my office and he says, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but we've entered an agreement to be acquired by AT&T. He says, if you want to go back to your old job, <laughs> you can. And I just said, you know, I had worked in consulting before at McKinsey. I said, no, I said, I do this job. I do this job. You're going to need a chief of staff. If anything, I'll just think of it as a long project. How long do they think it'll take for it to sort of go through regulatory approval? He said somewhere six months to a year. And so I stayed. And, you know, in super educational experience, too, And I became his chief of staff. And we went through that process of taking a lot of things that actually the team had been working on for a long time and rolling it out into what we call the uncarrier strategy. And what the uncarrier strategy was as its core was just listening to customers and removing barriers that they said they didn't like about wireless. It was a great, great journey. So right now, for the final part of our conversation, I'd like to roll forward a decade and talk about your predictions for the gaming industry. You've said that there's going to be three key aspects of the next generation of gaming, content, community, and cloud. I'd just love to hear more about it and how you see these three interacting. So my top prediction is in 10 years, more people on the earth will be gaming than people who do not. And we actually studied this a lot. And it pretty much turns out that as soon as people get access to 4G levels of connectivity, they're going to be playing some type of game. 
mobile game is normally where people start at that point, but mobile, console, PC. But I also think one of the reasons why this is true is actually just because of how that combination of content community and cloud come together. Like today, in a lot of ways, gaming is constrained to a specific device based off of the capabilities of that specific device. You got the mobile games, you got PC games, you have console games, and they're actually all different executables. Like the file is literally different and the requirements um, of the device that it's sitting on are very different. But when you bring together that content with the cloud, you can take that away and you can just have any game run seamlessly across any device because all of the compute is actually happening somewhere else. And what that means is, is that the community around that game can also come all together into one place, right? Because part of the problem is if you're playing a mobile version of Call of Duty, let's say, that's nothing like actually, and it's separate from the console version of Call of Duty and the community is set apart. But when you do that, you can bring them all together. So what I really think about what's going to happen over the next 10 years, you're just going to be in a place where you can be playing any game, you can be playing on any device, you can be moving between devices seamlessly, and you can pick up a local version one place, a cloud version another place. You won't know. All that's going to happen in the background. And the community is going to be able to play and actually share and achieve together in a really seamless way that involves really all of the players on the planet. You're also working hard, aren't you, to make it easy for an ordinary gamer to become a game creator. Why is it important to you and the Xbox team and and how on earth are you going about doing that? Yeah, it's important to us because we believe in creativity and the enormous power of putting creative tools into the hands of more people leads to innovations you otherwise wouldn't imagine. We started an indie developer program. It's called ID at Xbox. And I think it's in its like seventh or eighth year, but it has literally led to an explosion of creativity and the diversity of titles that we see. And we gone from this world where it was mainly AAA, known large publishers, you know, Ubisoft, EA, Activision, those large, you know, take two, to a huge diversity of publishers and content in the ecosystem. But the really cool thing about it is some of the biggest names we think of today in gaming actually came through this program, like Roblox, PUBG, Fortnite. All of these games actually came and they started as small studios who had an innovative and different idea. And by nature of us making it possible for them to self-publish and sort of get access to a community that they couldn't otherwise, we helped them become these amazing powerhouses. We all think they were always huge. They weren't always huge. So we just see continuing to advance that as critical, like not just about publishing, but creation. And games, because they're the most complex form of media, that's far harder to make a game than it is to make a video, to record a song. The nature of the tools that you need is a lot harder. Um, And so we really are investing in taking that barrier down to continue to allow new creative voices and experiences that otherwise wouldn't exist. And what is it about the grassroots game creation that's different from how games have been made historically? Well, in some ways, there's nothing different about it. Every large studio was once a small studio in a little bit of a way, right? Like everybody, they were all once startups. Uh, But what I do think you see in indies and in grassroots game creation is a very personal story or something with really deep meaning. Someone will make a game around that. You see more of the individual in a way. There's a game called Soup Pot, and it's made by a set of women who are friends, and it's about their experiences cooking soup. And the fail state is just that the soup doesn't taste any good. (laughs) 
There's this game I really fell in love with this last year called Lost Words Beyond the Page. And it's really a game about the experience of a granddaughter losing her grandmother and the mourning that she goes through. And so people will just be able to take something deeply personal to them and put it into an interactive experience. And that's what's so beautiful about those grassroots, those indie games, those small studios, is it's really like a book, an autobiography sometimes, manifested in a game. Yeah, I think it also speaks to who's making the games and the different stories that you were talking about earlier. And I'm not sure how many people listening today would have thought about doesn't come naturally to go, oh, let's talk about soup or morning when it comes to gaming. So that feels pretty creative and different. Now, on an earlier episode, I was able to speak with Ananda Gruala, the CEO of Spatial on the impact of the metaverse and, you know, the changes it's going to have on our daily lives. And, and gaming is certainly where most people coming into the metaverse have probably already experienced it in, in some capacity. And you said it's going to be more prevalent than mainstream media. I want to know your thinking on this and what role you think the metaverse is going to play. It's interesting because the way we look at it is that every game is a metaverse of a type or many games are already. Like when you think about what a metaverse is, you're bringing, you know, huge groups of people together in with presence, with identity, with commerce, And you're enabling real-time, 3D, immersive, interactive experiences in a digital world. And that's Forza. That's Minecraft. That's Halo in our minds, right? And so I completely agree. I think gaming has an enormous role to play in that because many of the tools, the safety and security methods, um, the innovations that were driven by nature of trying to learn how to make games are going to manifest and be super relevant as non-gaming companies try and bring that into the worlds that they create. And so I'm excited for the innovation that's coming out of that. And I think it also just creates enormous opportunity for game creators to extend the impact that they could have into an even greater plane. Onto hardware. More and more people are playing games on a variety of different devices, increasingly on their phones. And with 5G, as you said earlier, this is only going to get bigger. But do you see or think there's a future where the traditional console and controller becomes redundant? I don't. I think it just changes what it is. I think there's always going to be this beautiful flagship, big screen, super immersive, high compute, low latency experience that some people are going to want. I think that's going to exist. It's it's like a luxury, right, in a way, um, when you say, okay, what is the absolute best experience I can have? And I think that there's a role for that, and it's important. But what I think it's going to be is that there's going to be more and more extensions from that experience and more and more people brought into gaming who don't necessarily need that experience or can't necessarily afford that experience outside of the gate. So those same games can be experienced a whole bunch of different ways. So a good example would be, we actually launched this a couple weeks ago, where we are actually streaming Fortnite to any device from the cloud. So this is a game that, you know, traditionally has required some type of hardware or it, you know, that wasn't able to be on all mobile devices, and now they can be. And so I think it's going to have, you know, the console will always have a role to play, but the number of ways that you can access those same IPs and games is going to expand, and then the number of people coming into gaming is also going to expand with it. We're also really excited about smart glasses that matter. Are we going to be playing Xbox games on glasses going forward? I think we're going to be playing Xbox games and games everywhere, honestly. 
And we're already seeing it. You know, to my Fortnite example, there was actually a person I tweeted it out. They were literally playing Fortnite on their on a watch. <laughs> so admittedly, it was a very small screen. And the thing is funny, like um, the analogy we sometimes talk about is you know how if you talk to your grandparents, they find typing to be a little strange, right? They're like, mm, you know, and, they, and and then, you know, when we talk to our, my dad, even a person who worked in wireless telco is just now embracing the idea of touch screen texting, okay? <laughs> and so we think if people have been gaming for a long time, like, wow, are people really going to do this on their watch or on glasses? But yeah, they will, because it'll be normal for them to have that option and to use different input methods and to engage that way. And then it's going to continue to go and go into form factors that we haven't even imagined yet. Now, we can't have a conversation about gaming without talking about gender. It's heavily male-dominated world inside and out. And I read recently that only 24% of people working in the industry of women. Is this changing? It is changing. Do I wish it were changing faster? Absolutely. <laughs> and it goes back to what I was saying before. How do you create a beautiful, engaging, immersive form of media that can really connect people if the people making it are not representative of all the people on the earth? It's one of the things we talk about a lot at at Xbox, at Microsoft, and it's also one of the things we're very dedicated to changing within our own team is, you know, how do we, if we want to build the platform that everybody plays, how do we actually make it possible that everyone's building that? Because there are just so many millions of micro decisions that are different when you have a team that looks at it from multiple perspectives. I'll give an example. Actually, we talked about the Connect earlier. Early versions of Connect, when we were first testing it, couldn't recognize female forms. The reason why they couldn't recognize female forms is that all, all the testing data, like all of the people on the team who would come and stand in front of the camera and, you know, wave their arms up, were men, or the majority of them were. We caught it because a friend of mine, Shannon Loftus, who was an executive on the team, took the device home, as we are always given, you know, testing devices, and came back and said, hey, this thing isn't recognizing me the same way as it does my husband and my son. And then the team pivoted and got more data and more people in to correct for that. But it wouldn't have been caught at all if she hadn't been on the team. And there's just millions of tiny things like that that we can't even imagine in, in, in types of diversity, women, but also just other types of diversity, neurodiversity, ethnic diversity, everything. And that has to change. And I think that that's, that's critical for where we're going in the future. Also, what about the content? You know, women account for, I believe, about half of gamers. Mm -hmm. But the stereotypes still abound. You see the scantily clad yeah. women, the muscly men. What are you doing to eliminate those sorts of stereotypes? Well, we look at it in a lot of variety of ways. One of them is, is that the stereotype exists, but all those things I was talking to you about earlier about the diversity of content is really important. We've gone from a world where there was a few IPs that people actually typified gaming to the, that not actually being the case by giving people a myriad of other options of what they play, how they play, and how they engage. But then we also think about it in terms of us setting the standard with our own content, right? What do we make in Xbox Game Studios that exemplifies those things? So a, a great example would be a game that we um, released last year called Tell Me Why. I don't know if you played it or heard of the game, but it's essentially the story of twins who were separated as children. They had a trauma happen to them as children, and one of them is a trans male. 
And they go through a, a set of experiences where they relive the experiences and the memories come back. And you actually get to understand some of the perspective of what it means to be a trans male through engaging with this character. And so we intentionally go out of our way to make games like that, to put stories like that out there so that we really get to see a diverse set of points of view in the content that people are playing. Now, finally, there are currently two billion gamers in the world. And you said earlier on this call that you predicted that this number is going to rise to about 4 billion by 2030, maybe even sooner. That's going to be almost half the world. What will your role be in that growth? And when you reach that target, what on earth will you do next? (laughs) Retire. (laughs) Go to the beach. Do you want to come? (laughs) In the metaverse? (laughs) Well, look, first of all, It was about 2 billion four years ago when I started. We crossed into rounding up to 3 billion last year. So it was even sooner than we originally thought we crossed into three. And I think we will easily hit four, as I said earlier in the call. But the role we really think about is like, how do we actually give more access to gaming and experiences? How do we lower the barrier to entry to get in? How do we make it safe and inclusive? So all these different things that you see Xbox driving in our products, it's all about that. We have two consoles, actually, this generation, the Series X and the Series S. The reason for that is the Series S is a lower price point. It allows people to decide, do I care more about frame rate or do I care about resolution? But I don't need to spend as much money to get into Gen 9. That was a very conscious inclusion choice that we made. That's why we're doing uh, cloud gaming, where you say, okay, now you can play these games, but you don't need a special purpose $500 device to do it. You can actually pick up your phone and you could do it on your phone that you already own. That brings more people in. Innovations we do on accessibility, making it possible with people with disabilities to fully engage in making and playing games. And all of these things bring more and more people in. And I think that's the role we play is just lowering the barriers to entry, making it safe, making it secure, and something that's just truly fun. Sarah, listening to you, I have no doubt you're going to be on that beach sooner rather than later. I'll make that day. An enormous thank you for being so open in sharing your vision with us today. I am absolutely sure you've inspired so many of our listeners to be able to go out and just play one of their favorite games. But it's also been really fascinating to hear how you're thinking about the future of gaming and also Xbox role in making that future a reality. And to our listeners, if you'd like to hear from other inspirational leaders, subscribe to the Now Then 10 podcast from Meta Foresight, wherever you get your podcasts. And to get the latest insights, head to facebook.com slash business slash foresight, or just click the link in the show notes. Until next time. Meta Foresight is where insight meets opportunity. We're futurists at heart and optimists by nature a team of researchers, journalists, and marketeers from diverse disciplines on a mission to discover where the world is headed. We track the trends and topics that 3.6 billion voices care about. We field studies, conduct surveys, and talk to big thinkers both inside and outside Meta in the hope of understanding what those signals mean for the future. Our tools and reports lead and help leaders to navigate cultural shifts challenge convention, and prepare for what's next. We're not predicting the future. We're seeking it, and we'd love for you to join us. So get the insights and foresights that you need at facebook.com business foresight.